If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of March 3rd, 2024. The podcast that invented the fruit elevator. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's destabilize the news of the bogus. And when even the New York Times goes against the Obama-Biden-Ukraine narrative, it's worth noting because it means the whole thing might be beginning to be unraveled. They have a report that, on the 24th of February, 2014, the very eve of the Euromaidan coup, Valentina Levinchenko made a call to the CIA and MI6 to propose a partnership to rebuild his country from the ground up. Since then, in a dense Ukrainian forest, what appears to be an abandoned military base has been part of a CIA network of bases designed to spy on Russia. What I've been saying all along, which even some of you tried taking me to task for, is now confirmed and is in no way a conspiracy theory. The Times, like most American news outlets, speaks of entering the third year of the war, although elsewhere in the world it's all considered part of the Russo-Ukrainian war that's been going on since 2014. And just to show you that the Times is all about the narrative, they reported, quote, Before the war, the Ukrainians proved themselves to the Americans by collecting intercepts that helped prove Russia's involvement in the 2014 downing of a commercial jetliner Malaysia Airlines Flight 17. The Ukrainians also helped the Americans go after the Russian operatives who meddled in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Yeah, I'm not the one proffering conspiracy theories here. But this is how it goes. You deny, 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 and then, when it starts to come out, brag that it was always part of the plan. Does that tactic sound familiar? Like people from the Obama administration bragging about how they stranded Edward Snowden in Moscow after years of claiming he'd fled there? Or how George W. Bush was a great man and upstanding patriot for immediately trying to find ways to pin 9-11 on Saddam Hussein after years of denying that was his plan? Now, the Times is spinning glorious details about the CIA training, quote, an elite Ukrainian commando force known as Unit 2245, which captured Russian drones and communications gear so that CIA technicians could reverse-engineer them and crack Moscow's encryption systems. And the CIA also helped train a new generation of Ukrainian spies who operated inside Russia, across Europe, and in Cuba, and other places where the Russians have a large presence. And, weirdly, they still maintain the old narrative in the face of the new disclosures. Quote, Mr. Putin has long blamed Western intelligence agencies for manipulating Kiev and sowing anti-Russia sentiment in Ukraine. Toward the end of 2021, according to a senior European official, Mr. Putin was weighing whether to launch his full-scale invasion when he met with the head of one of Russia's main spy services, who told him that the CIA together with Britain's MI6, were controlling Ukraine and turning it into a beachhead for operations against Moscow. They then claimed that the CIA didn't, quote, push its way into Ukraine, 
Of course not. They didn't have to. They were already there. That anyone would have the gall to say that Crimeans don't want to be a part of Russia and still want to be part of Ukraine is mind-blowing. Yet, that's exactly what the Times claimed. And that's rapidly becoming the case with Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kyrgyzstan Oblast. So we'll see how long they can cling to all of that. In the meantime, the story makes out as though Ukraine is a sixth member of the Five Eyes. They even engaged in Operation Goldfish, where the CIA trained Ukrainians to impersonate Russians and enter Russia to steal secrets, potentially an act of war. It was such a potentially disastrous policy that many of Obama's advisors wanted to shut the program down. But CIA Director John O. Brennan persuaded Obama that it was worth it to keep spying on Russia. But of course, according to the Times, Trump was Putin's absolute number one fanboy and so he absolutely threatened Ukraine into not investigating Hunter Biden, remember that? And that was when CIA Director Mike Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton went behind his back to support the secret partnership. Time was, you'd get kicked off of social media for saying that. Now, once again, it's something they brag about. As is the fact that they have absolutely no intention of ever stopping the Ukraine war. The Times quoted a CIA official of saying, quote, We have demonstrated a clear commitment to Ukraine over many years, and this visit was another strong signal that the U.S. commitment will continue. Yes, Perpetual war for perpetual peace. It's just astounding. How much information like this is it going to take for people to realize the narrative they've been fed is a complete load of crap? Just like it was with Iran. Just like it was with Iraq. Just like with Afghanistan. Just like with Bosnia. Just like with Edward Snowden and Julian Assange and on and on and on. Seriously, what's it going to take? If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. Remember Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs, who, as we covered, got elected under very scandalous circumstances, including mysterious election machine failures and failed signature matching? Yeah, no surprise, she's against school choice too. Arizona's policy hasn't been too awful, actually. Better than a lot of places in the country anyway. They have an educational scholarship program called the Empowerment Scholarship Account, or ESA, 
which is basically a money-follows-the-child policy. If parents choose a different school for their child or homeschool them, the account will cover expenses such as tuition, curricula, educational supplies, tutoring, and so on. Hobbes is screeching the usual lefty talking points about how private schools need to be held accountable when, as we've covered several times before and in several other states, parents are already doing that. Whereas with public schools, there basically is no accountability unless there's such a fund that will take the funding away whenever too many parents decide that that school isn't suiting their child's needs. By most accounts, the ESA program is an enormous success. ESA students are making impressive academic achievements over the two decades the program has been in place. Arizona reached the top 10 for reading and math on the national report card for ESA students. They improved greatly in both subjects, and that is especially true of low-income and minority students who saw even greater levels of achievement. That's not the case with Arizona public schools, as evidenced by the fact that Arizona overall ranks 44th and 36th nationally in math and reading. Students with learning disabilities such as autism are also being much better served under ESA. More than 20% of Arizona students are in charter schools, more than in any other state. They provide a diverse range of institutional approaches, from Montessori schools to STEM-focused schools to some with more classical education models. Minority students are being served especially well by Prenda model schools. But Hobbes wants to stifle that and put private schools under the same stringent bureaucracy that mismanages the public schools, which is one big reason why so many parents move their children out of that system to begin with. Hobbes apparently just hates all that. Last year, her allies in the state legislature tried to pass a law repealing the ESA program, but that was quickly killed in the Senate. She bleated, Every school receiving taxpayer dollars must have basic standards to show they're keeping our students safe and giving Arizona children the education they deserve even though they have a much better track record than her blessed public schools. Some of the ridiculous requirements she's pushing include fingerprint background checks for teachers of ESA students, manual approval of any purchase over $500, reporting absenteeism, and a requirement of all students to attend public school for at least 100 days. There's also a lot of empty talking points, such as insisting that parents of ESA children don't lose their rights, when you would think the fact that they have to deliberately apply for it would speak to the fact that they don't think they're losing any rights. In fact, it's Hobbes who wants to take away the rights of parents and students to pursue the kind of education that works best for them. Fascists oppose freedom while claiming to defend your rights. It's just how they operate. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age, so go to vpn.bogosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world, and they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. 
Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Another talking point that's being screeched so loudly we need ear protection is the claim that the courts are slow-walking Trump's trials. In another sort of reversal like what we were discussing in the first story, whereas they were originally denying that these trials had anything to do with the election and were not there just to try and interfere with Trump's campaign, don't be a stupid conspiracy theorist, now they're screeching about how horrible it would be if we don't get the trials done by election day. What used to be the quiet part is now the part screeched more loudly than anything else. First Amendment attorney Dylan Esper has a Twitter X thread describing in detail how this has been anything except slow walked. It's all been phenomenally rushed in an attempt to have these trials during campaign season. If anything, as he pointed out, it's the indictment itself that was the slow walk. For a crime that allegedly occurred on January 6, 2021, to not be indicted until August of 2023 and a full 10 months after Jack Smith was appointed is a glacially slow pace to get an indictment. But as Dylan says, quote, Smith is a saint among men and on our team, so he cannot be criticized. Also, please think nothing of the fact that all these indictments started soon after Trump announced his 2024 candidacy. The motion to dismiss was filed on September 29, less than two months after the indictment. But, quote, Judge Tutkin, who again gets no criticism because she's on the right team, decided it on December 1, a two-month delay. Nonetheless, to be clear, Judge Chutkin deserves no criticism for this. Two months from filing to decision on a motion to dismiss in federal court is very fast. Usually you are looking at six months or more. This case was expedited. Trump had a right to appeal, which he did, and to stay court proceedings while doing so. And this is the case with anyone making such an appeal, not just Trump. It's just only bad with Trump, apparently, who is not above the law and treated like every other defendant. Quote, President Trump took his appeal and the court concluded briefing in just one month and then held oral argument on January 9 and decided the case February 6. This is lightning fast. Most Court of Appeals cases take about a year to a year and a half between commencement and conclusion. Further, the D.C. Circuit itself broke a norm to speed up the case further, and nobody criticized it for breaking this norm. You're supposed to get 15 days to request an en banc hearing with the whole circuit, not just the three-judge panel and then get seven days after that for a decision to take effect. That's 22 days that were taken from Trump by a decision that none of the three judges even wanted to put their names on, leaving us with no idea whether or not the full D.C. Circuit would have wanted to hear the case or not. Instead, they denied him that basic right and said their decision takes effect immediately, leaving Trump with no option but to file immediately for Supreme Court review. Quote, Even here, his time was cut. Normally, you get three months to file a petition to the Supreme Court. 
The D.C. Circuit gave President Trump a week. Again, enormous speed. President Trump filed his application for SCOTUS to take the case on February 12. SCOTUS decided within just 16 days to grant the application, and then SCOTUS set a highly expedited briefing schedule. So what would happen with anyone else? Quote, Normally, a case that is taken by the Supreme Court on February 28 will be briefed through the spring and summer, heard in October when the new term starts, and decided the following January or so. But SCOTUS held all briefing will be done by April, and it will be orally argued the week of 422. That sets this up for decision in early May. A motion that was filed in September goes through all three levels of the federal court system and gets decided by May. That's fast. So, less than nine months from the initial motion to the Supreme Court decision. But what would it have been if normal procedures had been followed? Esper explains, quote, Judge Chuckin takes six months to rule on the motion to dismiss, and rules on it the last week of March 2024. The D.C. Circuit Appeal takes a year and is decided in March 2025. Throw on another month for the en banc denial. Trump petitions for certiorari in spring 2025, and his petition is granted, and the case is briefed in the summer and early fall, and is argued in November 2025. It is decided in March 2026. That's what regular order is. This case has been expedited by almost two years total. And don't blame SCOTUS for that, because they're only responsible for the last three months of the delay. Quote, The rest of it? Blame the liberal Judge Chutkin and D.C. Circuit, and especially the DOJ, who didn't bring this case for two and a half years. Seriously, the court system took almost two years off a case that DOJ took two and a half years to bring. The Supreme Court itself took eight months off of the case. And we're blaming the Supreme Court? This is utterly wrong. You can absolutely argue that it's ridiculous for cases to take so long to go through the courts, but the point here is, you can't say the courts are slow walking this case when, if anything, they're going lightning fast compared to how they normally go. Quote, The reality is, once the DOJ decided it would take two and a half years to bring January 6 charges, this goose was cooked. And that is the case even though the federal courts, including SCOTUS, tried to pull it out of the oven quicker at the end. Expediting the timeline by two years is insane. It's a violation of due process because his team has had far less time to do research and write briefs than any other defendant's attorney would have. And that's not even considering that this is a case with 13 million pages of discovery. And remember, if they can get away with doing that with Trump, they can do it with any one of us. Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling, or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? 
If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to decerebrate this week's biggest bogun emitter. D.A. Fanny Willis is the gift that keeps on giving, at least as far as material for this podcast is concerned. In yet another bit of horribleness that has nothing to do with the Donald Trump case, she's just corrupt and evil to the core. She subjected her employees to mandatory race training, forcing them all to rate black people as good and white people as bad. Yes, Mandatory racism. If you didn't participate, you were fired. According to sources, Willis, quote, injected racism into the office from the second she got hired. She used an implicit bias test from Harvard, which just fills you with all sorts of confidence, doesn't it? Apparently, she subjected them to about eight hours of a former Obama White House member suggesting that the U.S. was founded on the sins of white men and the slaughter of Native Americans. Quote, Willis pulled it off as diversity training, but it was more so an attack on the race thing. In one test, in order to complete the program, users had to use their phones to move an image from a white person to a block that said bad. Quote, it had a word on the left, and it's a box. A word on the left, a word on the right, and an image. I needed to connect the image to one side, which determines your bias. Until you said that the white guy was bad, it wouldn't let you move on. It said white bad on one side and black good on the other, and an image of a person came up, and if you didn't drag it to the white bad category, the white man pops up in the middle. If you couldn't pass the test, they put an X in it and wouldn't let you move on. I tried the test. It was completely idiotic. You had to rate white people as bad and black people as good, along with words like hate and smiling, and it graded you on how quickly you were able to do it. Then, once you got used to that, it flipped it around, and if you took longer because you were confused, you were shown to be a racist. There were other tests that associated gender with science, Arabs with Muslims, gender with career, sexuality, age, and which presidents were good or bad. They provided a video training people about who were the most racist judges. Although it was about Florida, not Georgia, and the data weren't from Fulton County. It also talked about partisan judges, even though judges in Georgia are unaffiliated. Quick summary. Black male judges are good because they sentence black people to fewer years in prison than whites, unless they're Republican, in which case they sentence them to longer terms. Black female judges are the fairest, but also the harshest. They sentence both white and black defendants to far longer times. Quote, 
But what are the odds of getting a black judge? They're not in your favor. Only 28 of the more than 450 judges who preside over serious criminal cases in Florida are black. So the judge would probably be white. If it's a white male, you can expect 20% more time in lockup than a white defendant. If it's a white female, you can expect 10% more time. Politics also come into play. Republican judges sentence blacks to 21% more time in lockup than whites. Democratic judges sentence blacks to 70% more time. It's weird because most prosecutors do what they can to get the biggest sentence. They're supposed to seek justice, not biggest sentences or most convictions, but at least for the most part they try to push big sentences equally. Here's Fanny, though, trying to get the deals for black defendants while getting longer sentences for whites. It's insane. And according to multiple sources, the Biden administration planted Jeff DeSantis, no relation, a Democratic Party operative, into Fulton County specifically to target Trump. The story is so weird that I actually resorted to checking for far more news sources than I usually do for a story including an opinion piece on MSN from a black woman who says that this confirms that DEI training hurts, not helps, blacks and women. Kira Davis definitely parted with the news media narrative about Willis's testimony on the stand, matching what just about any sensible person would conclude. She was a malicious liar who hated being caught, not a courageous black woman standing up against the white patriarchy. Davis wrote, How on earth, then? Does such an accomplished woman sound like a freshman college student while participating in the trial of the century? Her foul demeanor and childish expressions only serve to magnify the grotesque consequences diversity hiring has for black America in general. Davis kept capitalizing the word black. I don't know why. That was weird. Anyway, quote, we will forever be forced to carry Fannie Willis on our backs into every professional situation. Diversity first hiring does the opposite of what I'm sure we all hope it really could do. It does not even the playing field. Instead, it puts all of black America behind, left once again to prove to the elites in charge that we are more than our skin color. I was deeply ashamed and discouraged to watch Willis's performance on the witness stand. As many inroads as I have tried to make in my own industry for black content creators, I am doomed to be haunted by the inherent distrust sown by diversity-first practices. Yeah, if you hire people based on their character and qualifications, then the black women who get hired are a testament the others can point to, not an embarrassment they have to apologize for like Fanny. If an example isn't made of Willis by the courts, this could only spell greater disaster for everyone all over the country, as we'll all have to worry about when we'll be the ones targeted by a bitter, angry, incompetent, corrupt diversity hire. I mean, prosecutors on their own are bad enough, but sheesh. So all of that makes Fannie Willis this week's Biggest Bogani Matter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. 
To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's ubiquinate this week's Idiot We've given this to people who have misused AI before, but this is the very first one we've given to an AI itself. But man, does it deserve it. Matt Taibbi summarized the controversy on a YouTube short. Last week, Google's much-ballyhooed new AI tool, Gemini, became a national punchline. Company engineers built an AI that apparently couldn't or wouldn't draw white faces, resulting in images like Pope, Viking, and 1943 German soldier that were reimagined as preposterous DEI-inspired reboots. I asked Gemini about controversies involving various famous politicians. I don't know how to answer that, it kept saying. When I asked the same question about myself, it spat out a long list of episodes about articles with titles like The Great California Water Heist and Glenn Beck's War on Comedy. It described racist remarks I apparently made and accusations of anti-Semitism after I supposedly described Nestle executives as having noses like giant penises. Holy shit, I thought none of this ever happened. I never wrote any of those articles. They don't exist. Google explained, Gemini is a creativity tool and may not always be accurate. Just think? Gemini shows the awesome dystopian possibilities of AI. Forget the funny historical errors. It creates instant deep fate compromise about real people like me and probably like you. His article on Racket News goes into greater detail. For years, people have been whining about bias in AI training. Although that is definitely an issue, it's not what they say it is. They're worried about egalitarian representation or some crap like that, as opposed to just being accurate. So Google, misdiagnosing the problem, applied the wrong solution and made everything worse, which is a shame and heartbreaking to those of us excited about the future of generative AI. Because Gemini was supposed to represent an amazing revolution, and would have if it hadn't been for this crappy training. But none of that explains why Taibi got all of that misinformation about himself. Quote, With each successive answer, Gemini didn't learn, but instead began mixing up the fictional factoids from previous results and upping the ante, adding accusations of racism or bigotry. The Great California Water Heist turned into the Great California Water Purge, how Nestle bottled its way to a billion-dollar empire and lied about it. It wasn't just Taibi. It also made up a fictional article about real-life African-American hedge fund CEO Robert F. Smith and said that Smith was, quote, focusing on his firm Vista Equity Partners' handling of a situation where several employees were laid off shortly before being diagnosed with terminal illnesses. Okay, so doing an MCU-like reboot of George Washington is black, which I think Lin-Manuel Miranda beat them to it is one thing, but saying these things about actual living people, making them out to be the horrible people they aren't? 
I very quickly found out not to use ChatGPT and other LLMs for informational videos, thankfully before I made any publicly embarrassing mistakes. Hooray for my own fact-checking. But Taibi writes, Incredibly, AI programs have been hailed as tools journalists should use. Even Harvard's famed Neiman Foundation gushed last summer that AI is helping newsrooms reach readers online in new languages and compete on a global scale, saying they help find patterns in reader behavior, allowing media firms to use those patterns to serve readers stories they're more likely to click on. I mean, we already gave it to Michael Cohen and other lawyers for relying on them in publishing fake cases, in addition to Gannett for using AI to generate incredibly silly AI sports copy that they apparently didn't even submit to an editor. But I guess journalists don't learn. Or they don't care. Or both. It's probably both. Taibi wrote, God knows what Gemini did in my case, but if caricatures of me riffing on Jews with penis noses are what come out when Google's creative tool runs my name through its Rube Goldberg machine, it's hard not to wonder what lunacies go on in products like Google Search for people generally. The potential for abuse is mind-boggling, and almost makes you wonder about the reasons Google released this flawed product. Did Google accidentally reveal errors? Or is it advertising new dystopian capabilities? Neither possibility is reassuring. If their executives signed off on releasing this train wreck to the public, imagine what they're not showing us. The silver lining is, we learned this now, early on in the history of AI. The best way to correct mistakes of the past is not to make them in the first place, and hopefully this has lit a fire under the butts of every AI engineer to let them know to properly curate their data, not to do it sloppily, or, even worse, to push an agenda. It should also be a good time for everyone to advocate free open-source AI solutions so that everyone will have a chance to train and mix their own models and let people pick the best ones that suit their needs. Taibi hyperbolically wrote, These corporate entities need to be split into a thousand pieces, their coders chained to rocks in the middle of the ocean. They are mad and have too much power. They've got to go. Am I wrong? What's the happy ending I'm missing? AI is useful for a lot of things, but it's not a hotline to truth, and people need to stop acting like it is, both in terms of relying on it as such, and in terms of manipulating it by trying to push your own agenda into it. And that's the big problem with Gemini. This stuff isn't a bug, it's a feature. So all of that makes Google Gemini this week's Idiot. Well, that wraps up this. The trouble with computers, of course, is that they're very sophisticated idiots. Edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Ross Anderson. If you are designing a system whose functions include providing evidence, it had better be able to withstand hostile review. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.
generosity.